Now, it was Napoleon who famously said, give me lucky generals. Well, my guest today is General David Petraeus, and he knows a thing or two about forging his own luck through hard work, intellect, and preparedness, leading CNN to describe him as the most effective US military commander since Eisenhower. This change maker brings the skills of the strategic leader marching to a battle rhythm for life. That feat has been at the heart of a career of distinguished public and military service. And the service he has given has been highly mindful, questioning, and conscious. His is a reputation forged by the surge of big ideas, communicating them, overseeing their implementation, and determining how they need to be refined. It's why today's story really does reveal why fortune favors the prepared mind. General Petros, welcome to Changemakers. An absolute pleasure to have you on the, on the show. Let, let's start, if I may, about this issue of lucky generals, said by Napoleon, he wanted lots of them. You've got your own view about luck and how you make it, I believe. Well, luck does play a role, but I've often thought of luck the way a Roman philosopher did, which is to say that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And I think you do have to prepare throughout your lifetime for the opportunities that may present themselves, noting that, of course, they may not. Uh, But if they do, uh, if your name is called, uh, if, as Napoleon used to say, the, the call goes out, Petraeus for field marshal, and you reach back, and you have to have that preparation, uh, metaphorically, the field marshal's baton in your rucksack. But, of course, it's intellectual preparation. It's physical preparation. It's professional uh, knowledge, expertise, attributes, and all the rest of that that you work very hard throughout your professional life to accumulate. Uh, And so that you can, if that call comes, deploy them and put them to good use. Mm. And and if people are listening to this and thinking, I would like to have that preparation, is is there method? Are there, is there advice that you would give to people that are saying, how do I prepare? What what do I do? Well, part of it involves a degree of focus. Obviously, you have to figure out in general, what is the field? What is the aspiration? What's your goal, objectives and so forth. And so you have to focus your attention in some aspect of that. Uh, And then I think you have to recognize that there are three distinct components of learning, if you will. Uh, There's learning on the job, there's the experiential aspect of development, Uh, there is learning through formal education and training, and then there's learning through self-study. The final component is the one sometimes overlooked by individuals because in the course and press of daily events and everything else, it's very difficult to carve out the time to, to read, to reflect, to write, to carry out, again, the, the personal part of preparation so that, indeed, if opportunity presents itself, uh, you truly are prepared. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, that key issue of time, which everybody, everybody struggles with. Time, though, you made to read um, Andrew Roberts' biography of Churchill, one of, one of your favorite recent reads. And I was thinking about this because, because Churchill is, is often quoted as having said that attitude is the small thing that makes a very big difference. I was wondering, is, is there a Petraeus attitude? Probably there are a handful of elements, I guess, that, you know, if you ask individuals who with whom I was privileged to work over the years, perhaps some of those I was privileged to command uh, in these different organizations that they would identify. Um, And I'll lay those out, but I first, of course, should note that Churchill had a quote for everything. And uh, and I have a number of those. uh, We're gonna trade quotes. (laughs) Yes, uh, there there is nothing that can't be addressed with a quote from Churchill. But um, I think that um, 
one of the aspects is a recognition that life is a competitive endeavor. You have to embrace that reality. You know, you really don't get a trophy just for showing up in the real world. Everybody doesn't get a t-shirt. You do have to try to be the very best. And I really mean this. So this has to be pursued with a very considerable amount of intensity. And if you talk to the soldiers that I was privileged to have in the great 3rd Battalion, 187th Infantry, when I was a lieutenant colonel, I mean, they'll talk about how serious we were about various aspects of uh, preparation uh, physically, uh, in terms of, of our professional tasks and so forth. Our live fire exercises were so realistic that I actually got shot accidentally in one of those right through the chest, obviously survived. It's great training for our medics and then for the hospital and ultimately for the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, but again, there, you really have to commit uh, to trying to be the very best that you can be, to try to make your organization the best it can be, noting that you're not always just trying to be the best overall. You mm. often compete to be the best team player as well. Right. And there are various I mean, junctures in life. I'm, during the fight to Baghdad, as the commander of the great 101st Airborne Division, hoping to take the division to its next rendezvous with destiny, this phrase that was used in the original general order by the, the initial division commander of that great organization, uh, I recognized that the biggest contribution we could make to the overall effort was to follow and support the mechanized division that was to our front and to provide them everything they could to keep their supply lines clear, to go into the cities that they were bypassing to make sure that they were secure and couldn't cause problems uh, for this enormous set of convoys that were going back and forth with fuel and additional ammunition and so forth. When my fellow division commander from that organization, the 3rd Infantry Division, mechanized, called up and said, hey, can you spare any 155 millimeter howitzer ammunition? I said, not only can we'll provide you the ammunition that we have, I'll give you the unit on which the ammunition is uploaded because it's easier to get that to you. Just I'll chop the entire field artillery unit to you. We used our 72 Apaches more than all of the others in the army units in Iraq at that time put together uh, out front of the 3rd Infantry Division. Uh, all of these actions, because again, that was the most important contribution we could make to the team effort, even though at heart, would really set out hoping to be the ones who would air assault into history by taking Baghdad International Airport. And in the same way, by the way, that the 82nd Airborne Division, which was further to the south of us, had hoped to jump on Baghdad International uh, Airport. And we all realized, again, the biggest contribution we could make would be to support the main effort division, which was so uniquely well-equipped, trained, um, and so forth for this particular fight that we engaged in and that we encountered as we were indeed fighting to Baghdad to take down the regime. Because I'm interested that you mentioned the, the word teamwork, because I mean, a lot of people that, that are listening to phrases like competitive instincts will say, well, that's fine for the battlefield. I get it. I get that's what a general would say. And actually, you know, in the civilian world, business world, that actually there are more collaborative instincts at play these days. But yours is, is a slightly more nuanced message, I guess, in terms of what competitiveness means to you. Well, look, I think the business world is fiercely competitive. Uh, and the 
the rewards are extraordinary and the, the penalties uh, for coming in second or third often can be chapter 11 bankruptcy. You know, I'm in an industry now, I'm a partner in one of the world's biggest investment firms uh, and the chairman of that firm's Global Institute. This is the most competitive undertaking, I think, around the world, short of perhaps the startup world, which is also fiercely competitive. And of course, the rewards in either of these worlds are the greatest. Hmm. And that's why that competition is so fierce. And the, the quality of the people uh, in, in this firm, KKR, are, it, it is just off the charts. Uh, again, truly extraordinary. All working together, always engaging what we term the whole brain, uh, collaborating with each other, but fiercely competing with the other firms that are all trying to do the same investment or buyout or whatever opportunity it is that is being sought mm. by, again, the major firms of our type around the world. And do you get a sense that on, on that nature, if you like, the competitive instinct, which you've actually given us as your top tip in, in, the, um, in the companion notes to this episode, is that do you get a sense that actually these are skills you can learn or are you just innately born with a competitive instinct? No, I think it's a combination, just as leadership is in a sense a combination. There are certain gifts that we are given and then there are others that we develop. I've noticed, for example, that my real academic competitive instinct actually came probably in the second year at West Point. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'd done very well in high school, but, but it hadn't been number one, if you will. And it was in that second year at West Point that I discovered, you know what, if I really focus and really commit myself and really go after this, I've got a shot to be, you know, there it's very special to be in the top 5% of the class, which I was not in the first year ultimately would have been even much, much higher than that based on the third, second, third, and fourth year. And from there, just decided that, you know what, I can compete. I can, again, play with the big guys, as they say. And, you know, when it came to the infantry basic course, it was an undergraduate ranger school, the most physically demanding course in the U.S. Army, uh, was number one and also received the other awards that actually were up for grabs. Uh, and then the staff college, even 1,100 students. Mm. And I was one of the, I was the youngest student in the class uh, and ended up number one. You really have to go for it. And, and again, the same is true of athletics. Don't lose the West Point because that class of 74 had an unparalleled number of four cadets who became four-star generals, Fortune 500 CEOs, a highly successful alumni of, of, of that year. Do, do you get a sense that actually that there was just something in the water that year? Was it because you were brought together? Was it just serendipity and luck? I mean, what, what do you think? Oh, as always, again, several different factors. I, mean, I think it was the leadership of the commissioned officers the, who oversaw the activities of the cadets, uh, of our professors, uh, and then also of the cadet chain of command uh, that sort of brought us along over those years. And I think a lot, again, about this is determined by culture. And there was a culture, I think, in that particular year group that permeated individuals that really did try to be their very best. As you noted, we had a number of, we had four four-star generals, which is, I think, three more than the class before us. And I, I can't remember when the last class that had four but we also had, as you noted, some major CEOs, and they're still uh, in CEO ranks out there. Uh, one of them leads a KKR company, in fact. So there's just something about that particular grouping 
and it becomes infectious. And of course, this is what you're trying to establish in an organization. You're trying to create a culture of excellence, mm. of real commitment to trying to be the very best that you can be. And of course, a leader's job is to provide the style of leadership, if you will, to create the context, to establish the culture uh, that will specifically bring out the very best in each of your individual direct reports and of the organization overall. And of course, that means that you have to have an ability to change the style, uh, to change your approach, because every organization is different and every individual is different. We all respond to different stimuli. We respond to different incentives. We respond to different levels of encouragement, of energy, of interest, uh, all the rest. And a leader's job is to determine what is it that will enable each direct report to be all, all that he or she can be and to enable the organization to achieve mm. its absolute excellence as well. And you're a great proponent of the big idea, the driving idea. And, and I, I read a lot about that in preparation for this interview. I mean, I mean, so much so that when I was reading your thoughts about the surge, which obviously was a big part of your reputation in, in, in Iraq, was, was the successful implementation of that. But you said that the surge that mattered most was the surge of ideas. Tell, tell us a little bit more about big ideas. And in fact, how outside of the military field, other organizations can benefit from them. Well, the job of any strategic leader, and that's the individual at the very top of an organization, be it in the military or in the civilian world, in government elsewhere, whatever, is to get the big ideas right. Now that's best done collaboratively, inclusively, iteratively, open, transparently, and so forth, because that's also the best way to create the culture that you're trying to establish. But at the end of the day, the leaders at the very top have to make the fundamental decisions. And that's why I've always described the surge that mattered most as the surge of ideas, the change in strategy, rather than the surge of forces, which is what many people associate with the surge in Iraq. And the, and the ideas that we adopted, the big ideas, the strategy, uh, this was literally a 180 degree change from what it was that we'd been doing before. Uh, right up until the surge, we had been pulling our troops out of neighborhoods, out of districts and so forth throughout Iraq, but especially in Baghdad, and consolidating on big bases and handing off tasks to Iraqi security forces, even though the violence was spiraling very dangerously out of control, and it was becoming increasingly clear that the Iraqi security forces couldn't handle that level of violence. So this is a very dramatic shift that we mm. can only secure the people by living with them. That's the big idea. Uh, so we're going back downtown. We're going back into the neighborhood. 77 additional locations for our bases, our forces, just in the Baghdad area alone. A huge effort involving lots of fights to reestablish these locations and so forth. But again, the only way that we could actually improve security for the people and ultimately, of course, improved it dramatically, driving violence down by over 85% during the course of the 18 months of the surge in Iraq. That was a fundamental strategic shift. But you see this in many other uh, sectors as well, in other industries. Think of Reed Hastings reinventing Netflix four different times uh, from an organization that started uh, as one that would get movies in the hands of its customers uh, through the mail 
thereby avoiding the costs of brick and mortar as Blockbuster had. Then the second big idea was allow them to download movies. Third is to produce their own content. Uh, House of Cards, Breaking Bad, $100 million again, just on House of Cards alone, an enormous bet. And then the fourth uh, big idea, of course, producing Blockbuster movies, mm. uh, big productions, including the one, the very first one, or early one, was Brad Pitt playing General Stan McChrystal, my very close friend. And Did you enjoy the movie? I no, I found, I, I was heartbroken, of course, that Brad Pitt didn't play me. Um, <laughs> but in any event, you get the idea about the big ideas. I mean, you see this with Jeff Bezos and Amazon, and it was almost unerringly uh, mm. gone from a very sort of modest idea that we're going to mail books to customers rather than have brick and mortar. And of course, has ultimately become one of the greatest e-commerce sites in the entire world. Think of Jack Ma, who's done something similar, of course, starting in, in China with Alibaba, but then also Alipay and all these other initiatives that were built off the original big idea. Think of Xiaomi in, in China, where the big idea is to make technology accessible and fun. Every one of those words except for and has very profound meaning. That's a very powerful set of big and, ideas. And they are and they are all good example, fantastic examples of organizations that have surged into markets and recreated them. I mean, but a lot of these stories, of course, I mean, they sound great in the retelling and they sound like you sort of jump from gilded height to gilded height. But of course, the great military saying of every plan is only as good as its first contact with, with the enemy also springs to mind. I mean, how do you deal with setbacks? How do you deal with the issue well, let me of talk personal, about that, personal doubt? Keep in mind that in this intellectual construct that I have built for strategic leadership, and of course, you can find this at the, the Belfort Center at Harvard has a a website, if you go to that and search for Petraeus on strategic leadership, and I identify four tasks, and we've only talked about the first, getting the big ideas right. Once you've got the big ideas right, you have to communicate them throughout the breadth and depth of the organization so that the individual soldier under body armor and Kevlar, it, turning my strategic big ideas into tactical reality uh, at his or her level, uh, understands the intent behind my big ideas and can operationalize them properly. And then you have to have the oversight of the big ideas. You have to oversee the execution of them. You have to drive the campaign. This is the usual exercise of leadership. It's providing example, it's providing energy, it's seeing it for yourself, going on patrols. It's your battle rhythm, your organizational schedule, how you spend your time is a critical set of decisions. It's the metrics that you fi file. It's the uh, hiring, the firing, the rewarding, the penalizing, all of those different aspects of leadership. And then there's a fourth task that gets to the question that you just raised, sometimes overlooked. And this is to determine how to refine the big ideas so that you update them, you improve them, uh, you get rid of those that aren't working, you adopt new ones that are promising, and you then do it all again with the new big mm -hmm. ideas, communicate them, oversee their implementation, and again, determine how to refine them. So as an example, if you don't determine how to refine them, you can get bypassed. You can end up like Kodak, which had over 2,000 patents on digital photography, but didn't adopt the new big idea around digital photography fast enough to keep up with the competition. And of course, ultimately ended up going bankrupt and ending the corporation as we knew it. So again, there's a huge penalty 
uh, for not ensuring that you are keeping up with the power of your big ideas and recognizing when they need to be refined, uh, when they need to be adapted, changed, and so forth. But I also get the sense, reading some of your other thoughts, that you are a great believer that there are there is a place for setbacks, overcoming adversity. Oh, um, look, this is um, part and parcel of leadership, and it's part and parcel of, of the human experience, uh, especially in combat. There are terrible setbacks. There are mistakes. There are shortcomings. There, there are blows all day long, literally physically sometimes, certainly in the form of casualties, uh, again, innocent civilian lives killed by the enemy or sometimes even mistakenly by our own forces. There's personal setbacks, there's personal mistakes. I've experienced this. And again, this is where you have to be able to confront what has happened, understand it, study it, learn from it, adapt, and then pick yourself up off the ground and, or get the organization back up off the, the canvas and move forward. You know, put, start putting your left foot in front of your right foot again with your rucksack on and moving out. But that's easily described and not right. easily done. The, the kinds of challenges that individuals and organizations have to confront can be very, very significant indeed. A measure of a leader, a measure of an organization, a measure of a, of a person, of a human being, often is the ability to come back. Uh, you know, one of my friends after I left government wrote to me and he said, you know, there's an old quote that might apply right now. It, it says, don't tell me how high the guy jumped. Tell, how, tell me how high he jumped back after getting knocked down. That's the measure. And, and in many respects, there's a lot to that. Because again, anybody can be a winner. I mean, but life is not full of high five moments. Mm. Uh, it's not full of these, you know, just endless spiking the football in the end zone. You come up short sometimes. You fail. Well, well, the other side, and you have I, to be able to, 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 to soldier through that, to continue right. on and have the determination, the sheer willpower to carry on. Because I suppose the question that, about carrying on is that, you know, what you are laying out is the story of courageous lives, about how you approach risk, about how you deal with those setbacks. In terms of people that, I mean, obviously you're, you're facing it on on the battlefield, which, which feels like the ultimate crucible, the test of self in terms of how you face down your own inner fears, your own inner, your, your own inner doubts, I guess. In terms of lessons for people listening to this, say, well, I might not have that, but I'm trying to look, look after my family through coronavirus. I might be in fear of my job. I might be looking to, to do things that, that look to a future that I feel very uncertain about. In that uncertain world, the coping techniques, the things that you've learned about, I, I guess, courage, actually, and in terms of how you summon up the best of yourself, what, what would you share? I, you know, I think it, again, is just sheer determination, sheer will. Again, it's, it's not just combat or very competitive business situations. Life is a contest of wills at times. Uh, and again, whether you've just got the sheer will to confront the challenges uh, that we all do encounter during the course of our lifetimes. And, and that's crucial. I, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you before that during the early, really tough weeks and months of the surge, I just happened to be reading a book that someone had given me that ended up in a rucksack and got unpacked on the table next to my bunk in Baghdad. And it was the book about Grant Takes Command by Bruce Catton. It's a real classic. 
And as I was going through that, experiencing through the, the written word, if you will, what Grant experienced uh, and the enormous challenges that he had during the years of the Civil War, and particularly this one battle, Bloody Shiloh, where he and Sherman, his most trusted lieutenant, were almost pushed back with their army back into the Tennessee River out in the western part of the, the early years of the Civil War. They're clinging literally to the riverbank. There are casualties all around on the battlefield. Others are in every available bit of shelter is being used as makeshift hospitals. Limbs are being hacked off. You can hear this, the cries of that. And Grant is just standing there waiting for the sun to come up the next day, uh, trying to move reinforcements down the river to get them in place quickly enough to go back on the attack the next morning. And Sherman comes out of the dark uh, and he sees Grant and he says, well, Grant, we had the devil's own day today, didn't we? And Grant says, yep, lick him tomorrow though. And it's that kind of indomitable spirit, indomitable will, which of course Churchill displayed in extraordinary fashion during the very tough reverses and early years of World War II. Uh, again, when you think of indomitable will, his name has to be at the very top of the list, inspiring an entire nation and then really an entire coalition to make it through the Battle of Britain and all the rest of that uh, and to keep them all hanging tough. So it's those qualities and, you know, there's also, you do have to recognize that at a certain point, all we can do is the best we can do. Mm. And, and you just, you do what you, I, you know, as an infantryman, there's times when you're in foliage that is so dense that you have your Kevlar helmet on, you know, and your weapons and you're being held. And you literally, and at night, and you can't see and night vision goggles don't provide much help because there's no illumination making it through this very uh, dense forest. And you literally just put your Kevlar down and push. And you push for as long as it takes to get out of that dense foliage uh, and then figure out where you are and then drive on. And again, that's a bit of a metaphor for life when you're encountering really tough obstacles and what, you just have to push through them. Right. Well, let's talk about the tough obstacle that is facing the world right now. How, how does the military mind see the world of COVID-19? I mean, is there a big idea for the world today that you see? I mean, is there the necessary yeah. leadership, courage, etc., to take us forward? I think that the response to the coronavirus pandemic around the world provides great case studies in the exercise of strategic leadership. Uh, there are certain countries that have gotten this just right. They have identified the right big ideas, which generally now are known. I mean, the big ideas are not, this isn't rocket science. It's just a recognition that if there is community transmission, you have to shut down. Uh, while you're shut down, you build the capacity for, for testing and for community uh, tracing. Based on that, you have protocols for keeping people sheltered in place, particularly if they're in the most vulnerable categories. Uh, and then you gradually open back up, but only after 14 down days of the virus. Uh, and, and progressively, you continue to do that with each subsequent 14 days that it turns down. Those that have done this well and have 
immediately implemented measures such as universal wear of masks in any place where people are together that have limited the number of people that can gather that have closed down bars and inside dining, which have been determined to be particularly locations where they may become spreader events, if you will, uh, very quickly. Uh, so all of this, if that is executed properly, if the campaign is driven, so those are the big ideas, mm -hmm. you've got to communicate them effectively, you have to oversee their implementation, and you have to determine how to refine them. And so one of the refinements has been, I think, recognition that unfortunately for those who like to go to bars, these aren't great locations for the maintenance of the kinds of measures that are required to prevent transmission. So again, this is all there. The question is, how is it being executed? You can see in, in the United States, it's fascinating because of course we have 50 different states. We don't have a national health service. So it really is up to the states and then municipalities that have public and private hospitals. And you look at a state like New York with uh, Governor Cuomo, who has done this almost flawlessly, albeit having not shut down early enough in the beginning, and he acknowledges that, and having also made some mistakes uh, involving the homes for some of the elderly citizens that, where it was a particularly tough toll. But New York and also then its adjacent states of Connecticut, New Jersey, perhaps Massachusetts, the transmission is at a very low level, despite having gradually reopened uh, a number of different activities. And I think that at the end of this month, there may be some provision uh, for reopening some dining inside but right. with very significant restrictions. Contrast that with some other states that, you know, despite having the big ideas out there, have either ignored them or flouted them, uh, have downplayed the, the importance of masks, haven't provided the example that is necessary. And you see it around the world as well. I'd say the countries you admire, New Zealand, they've got it right. I think even Germany has done a good job. So it's, again, it's not just countries that are islands in the middle of the Pacific, like New Zealand and Australia, but, but others as well. And then you see some countries that have not done as well. And again, in aggregate, certainly the U.S. is in that category. The U.K., uh, sadly, is in that category as well. And then you have another country that tried an entirely different big idea, Sweden, which is sort of the community transmission, just let it go and try to get herd immunity, while certainly taking care of your elderly. Uh, and that has produced a death rate per capita that is actually higher than that of the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and then you have lots of countries in between. Some of the European countries that uh, were hit very hard, did a very good job then, but now have seen the transmission pick back up and have to determine what it is they're going to do to, to reduce that. Again, you've got to keep the reproduction rate below one, and that's crucial. And when it goes above one, you have to take actions uh, to reduce it once again and to mitigate risks. And again, it's a particularly interesting exercise in strategic leadership. China, frankly, has done a brilliant job, noting, of course, that that's where it did begin uh, at the very outset, uh, but has done an extraordinary job uh, since that time uh, in getting a handle on this and also pioneering a variety of different apps and so forth uh, that are keyed off of the health of the individuals and can be displayed in green, amber, or red and allow you access or not. Uh, to buildings and, and various public transportation systems. Mm. I mean, back to you for a final question, if I may. I mean, in speaking to 
some people that, that know you and people that have studied you is words come up. They talk about the thinker. They talk about an incredible work ethic. You've said yourself, I worked assiduously hard academically, militarily and physically. Was that order purposeful in your mind? I mean, some people might have expected a general to define themselves militarily, but you have in, in your kind of post-military life, there is a very strong academic edge to you. Could Professor Petraeus be what you are ultimately remembered for as opposed to General Petraeus? It's a very kind thought, but I tend to think not. I mean, I, it's very hard to, to do something in the academic world that might be as at least as widely known as something like the surge in Iraq, or as significant, frankly, as the surge. It's not impossible. Uh, people like Henry Kissinger and Graham Allison and a host of others have done that, uh, you know, the new paradigm for this or that. But although I've loved the academic posts I have had at the U.S. Military Academy, the City University of New York, Harvard, Yale, University of Southern California, actually Exeter and University of Birmingham. Birmingham Yeah, you've got quite a roll call. (laughs) So, um, and those have been great fun, but therefore the rewarding aspects, therefore the intellectual stimulation that comes from this, these kind of commitments force you. They are action forcing mechanisms that force you to develop intellectual capital. So the reason that I, when I went to graduate school and the, the mission of two years at graduate school for an army officers to get a master's degree that enables him or her to teach at West Point. In my case, I said, look, I'm not just gonna get the master's degree, I'm going to complete all the coursework for the PhD, all the general exams, the language test, Uh, The required courses, some of which were fairly substantial, uh, graduate level, advanced microeconomics and macroeconomics as an example, and get the dissertation prospectus approved before leaving at the end of that second academic year. And it was an enormous push, but that became a huge action forcing mechanism. And I had publicly, deliberately told my future bosses at West Point where I was going to teach in the Department of Social Sciences that this was my intention. So now you have to follow through. It's a little bit like when one time I said, look, I'm going to run a marathon and I want to get, you know, way under three minutes, probably around 250. And of course, you're cursing yourself throughout the entire preparation for that, you know, the hours and hours and endless miles. And then, of course, during the race itself, but, you know, came in uh, under 251, well under it. And again, it's because you make this commitment that sort of forces you to, to live up to it. That's, there's value in that. So again, some of this has been in the academic world. Some has been in the physical world. Some's been in the professional world. There's some in the personal and family world as well, especially now with grandchild and, and another headed our way. And so, then you've got the dog as well. <laughs> and the dog who is faithfully down here never misses a Zoom session, knows that I need my, my wing woman, uh, our Corgi Lab mix that is the delight of the family. You would have no idea how many of these interviews I've done with the pets as well as their owners. Um, it's, I, I feel it's a whole new show. General Petres, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Um, I thank for, you, Michael. For, for taking the time. Real, really great to speak to you. And I, I, I promise listeners that this would be the show about why fortune favours the prepared mind. And you certainly didn't disappoint. Thanks very much there to my guest, General David Petres, and his thoughts on why big ideas can lead to game-changing outcomes. 
And for more in the way of top brass inspirations, join me next time on The Changemakers.